This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read, and my name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Craig, you sound a little different, friend. I am <laughs> definitely not a replicant of Craig. I mm-hmm. am a, not an Andy of Craig. I am mm-hmm. a real boy mm-hmm. with real vocal cord issues. Yeah. And I apologize to everyone. This is not my microphone. This is not a normal podcast like, oh, we used the wrong microphone. <laughs> yeah. No. Though, oh, dang. Now we, we could have passed it off like that, though. Oh, that would have been so smart. That would have been great. That would have been really smart. If only well, I'd I'm... been sleeping normal hours, I could have come up with such a scheme. I'm also not an Andy just because that's not the name that I choose to go no, by. You, no, you do not use that name. Don't. Don't love it. Like it's how it's the name I used in high school. And then I got to college and you're like, I'm like, you know what? This is going to be a different. I'd made the the first friends I really made in high school called me that. And I just kind of went with it because they were my high school. And now I have different friends and I'm going to be a different boy. (laughs) And I met you and we became friends. We did. And And I had a better voice then. And now here we are. And I'm listening to you and you sound like this. (laughs) I'm so sorry, everyone. (laughs) But we don't want to mess up our streak. We're mm-hmm. here to make content for you. We love making content. Can't and, stop, even if know, we wanted to. Sometimes, even, even if we had to stop. Sometimes you uh, live in a dystopian sci-fi universe where you're not sure what is real and what is a robot. And sometimes you get germs from your son's daycare, and your voice does this. Yeah, and, sometimes you, you know. get germs from your son's daycare, and then they kind of hang around for like a month, and then you get more germs. And then your germs unionize they and did. they try to oh, kick no. you out of your own body. <laughs> so, Andrew, what book did you read for this week's show? This week's show is the one I'm talking about. This is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Question mark by Philip K. Dick, period. It was our patron's choice uh, for the month of September. Mm-hmm. So thank you, patrons. Now, this is not the first time we have talked about Philip K. Dick. No, it's not. Back in February of 2015, Andrew, you read, this is episode 101, Mm -hmm. you read The Man in the High Castle. Yeah. And I want- We read like the second Fifty Shades of Grey book, and I'm like, you know what, we need to do a serious one after that. (laughs) Now, we had, you know, as is our want, we had kind of a rambly conversation at the beginning. What do you think we are talking about, Andrew? Oh, I couldn't possibly imagine, because it can't have been like anything- remotely related to what the show is about. So it wouldn't have been about like men or castles or no. elevations. I don't know. <laughs> you were trying to kick or had recently kicked caffeine. Uh-huh. And I was trying to kick a cough. <laughs> which I've been trying to do here in the year of our Lord 2023 for about eight, six weeks. So now I have, I don't totally not do caffeine anymore, but I never do it two days in a row anymore. Oh, so nice. I'm still for like, you. Yeah, I'm still I'm off caffeine because a few months ago I got neurovirus worse than I've ever had it and I couldn't put anything into my body for like four days. And then when I started coming back online, I was like, okay, Android. now that I've broken a bunch of dependencies, what can I keep not putting in my body? I like it. I like yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sickness is just another, in China, it's another word for opportunity. Oh my God. <laughs> so... We can point you back to episode 101 um, for some more discussion of Philip Kindred Dick and some of his other works. Uh, but I can just give you like a brief overview here. You know, he was born in 1928 and he died in 1982. He died pretty young. And I think when we get to talking about this book and the fact that it is the basis for a very uh, well-known and you know cult classic film, uh, Blade Runner and like why you know what is the relationship between those two I think part of it may just be a, a 
kind of a feature of the fact that Dick didn't like live to be part of the internet culture that arose around a lot of his work uh-huh. and a lot of the movies that got made out of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, so the f- the cultural footprint of the stuff that he either inspired or got adapted from his uh, his canon really has an outsize um, relative to him has kind of an outsize impact in terms of what I was able to find. Mm-hmm. So he you know he moves to California, drops out of UC Berkeley, he's hanging out with all sorts of new age and like older beatnik folks, and he's doing lots of drugs and hanging out, trying to make it a go as an author, and. He starts writing for all manner of science fiction magazines. Uh, the book that we covered before, Man in the High Castle, won the Hugo Award in 1963 after he starts writing sci-fi novels. He went on to write over 40 novels, over 100 stories, uh, and like just a running theme through many of them is kind of this, like, what is real? What is the animating conspiracy theory of the universe that we're in? Mm-hmm. Um I don't know how much of this you can solely chalk up to kind of a mind freak that happened to him in 1974. We discussed that in that episode. Remind me of the mind freak. Um, he was on sodium pentothal following dental surgery and a lady <laughs> de- uh, delivered more medicine to him and a ray of light hit her necklace and uh, he had like a two month awakening experience as a result where he believed that he had a dual like personality and one of them was a persecuted Christian from the first century of the Roman Empire. Uh, and he based several novels on this on like some of this stuff and basically spent the rest of his life kind of a little unsure of, you know, the world in which we live, man. Huh. Huh. Um, so I guess you go on to create a bunch of works that create uncertainty about that same, yeah. that same thing. Yep. Yep. Neat. Yep. Yep. Um, so this book, uh, published in 1968, it was nominated for the Nebula Award. Uh, it would retroactively get titled Blade Runner after the Ridley Scott film and other sequels, a few of which were published by this guy, K.W. Jeter, who yeah, it's was somebody who, a protege and a friend. Yeah. yeah, it's somebody who Dick knew, but they had like nothing to do with <laughs> Yeah, they, yeah. Philip K. Dick had nothing to do with them, and they're all more explicitly tied into Blade Runner because they're all called like what Blade Runner two, three, and four. I think yeah. are the like the titles of all the books. And from what I understand, they're also kind of trying to square the fact that like the book is pretty different in some key ways from the film, which everyone seems to ag- agree is fine. They're just kind of different, mm-hmm. and those books were like, well, what if they were less different? And we like wrote a bunch of ways to make them the same. Yeah. Um, this is an early work of cyberpunk, this novel is. Um, so like, there's another novel called Samuel, uh, Samuel R. Delaney's novel Nova, which is another early work that comes out. A lot of these folks are publishing in the British magazine called New Worlds. Uh, and then the year before the Blade Runner film, we get William Gibson's novel jo- uh, story Johnny Mnemonic, where a dude stores data in his head Ooh. for corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, basically like a big USB stick that can fight you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, USB sticks frequently, yeah. especially the USB A ones where you never know how you're going to plug those boys in. They're always fighting you. Yeah, they are. Um, mm-hmm. That's the, a funny joke about USB. <laughs> I get it. I, I do. <laughs> uh, and the word cyberpunk comes from Bruce Bethke's story, uh, Cyberpunk in 1982. William Gibson called it a combination of low life and high tech. Huh. And then it became... A video game yeah. that doesn't run very good. Apparently, they just decades later <laughs> created like the 2.0 version of it that's supposed to be better. I don't know. Mm, it just okay. came out. Sure. I mean, those people worked on godly hours. I hope everyone's okay. Yeah. They probably all sound like me. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in 1972, like this is like part of like the whole canon of this novel. Dick gave a speech called "The Android and the Human," and you can go find it and read it, and you know talks a lot about this like uh what did he say our environment um and i mean our man-made world of machines etc all of this is in fact beginning more and more to possess what the earnest psychologists fear the primitive season is environment animation so the notion that like you know in a pre-modern age you look at the world and you kind of prescribe an intention to it when it's like rocks and mountains and the ocean and stuff um 
and now we've created this industrial world, this highly, this advanced technological world, and we're starting to kind of read into a similar intent. And he's like, yeah, but we made all of it. So it's actually kind of our intent. We need to think about that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm writing about. My name's Philip K. Dick. Listen to me. I might also be a persecuted Christian for the first century. He didn't say that part <laughs> in that speech. But that's the subtext. No, because actually the, the, the yeah. persecuted Christian uh, awakening did not happen for another two years. So I suppose I shouldn't. I mean, it might have been, you know. might have been inside him. Yeah. That's might have felt that way sometimes. Maybe. Have you seen Blade Runner, Andrew? I saw the like the reboot one with you sequel. and another one of our yes, whatever it is, with you and another one of our friends. Yeah, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Several years ago. Yeah, when and it came that's out. it. I never saw I never saw the original one. I had never seen the original one until a few days ago when I watched it in preparation for this very podcast. And I it's Did you have a good watch? How'd, how'd it go? It was a good watch, but uh I am young enough. Haha. That's a fun thing <laughs> yeah. to say. I'm young enough. To like not have lived through the decades of multiple cuts and multiple versions of that film that is like the storied history of that movie where like the original theatrical release in America, the violence was toned down. They made Harrison Ford re-record like a whole bunch of monologues that explained a bunch of stuff that Ridley Scott <laughs> didn't want explained. <laughs> they gave it a weird happy ending that Ridley Scott didn't want. Mm-hmm. And so then there was like renewed interest in a director's cut in 1992 and then around the 25th anniversary which i think was also kind of getting uh, that was before the Villeneuve movie but um there was something called the final cut and that might not e- there there were versions in between but that's the version that i saw it's, that's the version you go out to see now if if you go to rent it or yeah, or yeah. whatever rent you it see digitally the, or something yeah. yes you see the the final is that is that a Ridley Scott approved cut yes, or is it, it a, is okay. the it is the Ridley Scott version of the film okay um the most Ridley Scott version that you could get <laughs> the Ridley cut yeah um and it's cool there's stuff in there that's not in this book there's stuff there's plenty of stuff in this book that's not in there so I'm kind of excited to talk about it Sure. Anything else before we move on? No, I don't think so. Okay. All right. I'm looking forward to helping you talk less in the next segment because you sound so sad. You're so kind. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's take a break. Craig, I'm just going to say it up front right now. Just break it to you gently. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Oh, thank God. I wasn't sure what you were going to say. It's just <laughs> an ad. A good ad uh, from Squarespace. I mean, I don't know if Android's dream of electric sheep, but I do know that humans dream of having a great website. And if that's a dream that you have, then the people at Squarespace, I think, are going to help you out a lot. They've got beautiful templates, drag and drop tools that make design easy to do. You never have to touch any code. And if you do happen to somehow break something... By some act of God, you have 24-7 award-winning customer support that you can contact anytime to get help. I want to tell you about some other stuff I like about Squarespace. Please. First, here it comes. Bloop, bloop. That's a fluid engine. Bloop, bloop. The next gen- <laughs> next bubbles coming up through the fluid. It's a next-generation website design system from Squarespace. It's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. Start with the best-in-class website template and customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or, get this, mobile. They also have powerful blogging tools to share stories, photos, videos, and updates, categorize, share, and schedule your posts to make your content work for you and for the people who are reading it, probably. Uh, You can also use their analytics insights to grow your business, learn where your site visits and sales are coming from, and analyze which channels are most effective, improve your website, and build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content. Craig, if all this sounds good to you, you don't need to dream about it anymore. You can make it a reality. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Andrew, did you know that the original title of this novel was reportedly Do Androids Dream? Did not know that. An editor named Mark Hafele 
claims mm-hmm. to have suggested calling it the electric sheep, and then they just jammed them together. That I mean, it makes it more memorable. The electric sheep thing is is the most memorable component. But then you do the Android thing, and you see the title of the book, and you're like, "Huh? Do they like count electric sheep when they fall?" So it raises all kinds of interesting questions that the book it's, doesn't really think about much. But it's a very evocative title. It's a, I love it's it. a title I knew even before I knew that I was going to read it or before it had anything, I knew I had anything to do with Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, where do you, where do you want to start? Uh, that's, that's a great question. Okay. Here's let's, let's do just very broad strokes plot stuff. And then we can talk about what of that is retained in the original movie. And then we can talk about just like stylistic differences. And I think that's going to touch on like a lot of what, Sure. Is going on. And a lot of, I, I feel like more people are going to be familiar, maybe not with our audience, uh, but maybe more people generally are going to be familiar with the movie than the book. So, yeah. I don't know. I think it'll be a good conversation. That's what I think. Okay. There's there's this guy, Rick Deckard, which is an amazing, like, sci fi action guy name. Unbelievable name. I could see Rick Deckard running around in a big spaceship that just happens to look like an empty warehouse in LA, <laughs> like yeah. blown up aliens or yes. something. <laughs> Uh, he is a bounty hunter who hunts Andes or androids who have, okay, here's the deal with earth is there was a nuclear war. Uh Oh boy. Yoing. Uh, there's fallout everywhere. Like literally the fallout from this war is that there's fallout everywhere. Like just radioactive dust. A lot of people died. A lot of animals died. Um, and the governments of the world that still kind of exist are, working to move people on earth to other colonies on other planets. The one, the only one we really hear about is Mars, although it's implied. I think that there, there are more. Um, and part of the process that earth societies use to incentivize people to go to Mars is, Hey, we'll give you an Android. And these are basically at first like repurposed battle robots from the war. Oh, wow. (laughs) But they are sort of re programmed and updated and refined to act more like sort of personal butlers to the to the people who are going to mars okay only folks that can go to mars are people who are judged to be like people who could still reproduce basically people who are judged to be like genetically unaffected by all of the fallout and radiation that's still on earth but there are a lot of people who are still staying on earth some of that's you know classic like i'm not going anywhere this is my home stuff some of it is people who aren't allowed to go to Mars because they are, they have mutated or they are like considered substandard or subhuman in some way. And then the other kinds of people who are living on earth are uh, androids who have escaped from Mars and come back to earth because they don't want to be androids to people on Mars. Sure. So that's, and, and they are, yeah, like Deckard, Deckard hunts and gets rid of them. It's not always clear that they're like, a, they pose a threat to anybody on Earth, but they are definitely not human and they, we just don't want them around, apparently, for yep. some reason. Well, okay. um, that's the, so that's, that's the big thing is we just follow Deckard around. He's been, he's got this list of like half a dozen androids that he needs to retire. And the book is what happens to him as he goes about his work. Are they that. like related in terms of like they were all part of one big thing. Or... All the people he's he is hunting did happen to be on one big convoy that that came to Earth. Like the the leader of this android group like killed a bunch of people, and that that's that's part of why I think the the it's mostly what's left of the U.S. and what's left of Russia. Because remember, this was written in 1968 or whatever. Yep, like yep. what what's left of the world's two superpowers at that point are you know interested in hunting these people down because it's a it's a little it's kind of a like a law enforcement slash justice issue because mostly when they escape the androids have stolen something or killed somebody like they, they've done some kind of crime or crime adjacent thing to accomplish their goal so that's that's i guess nominally why they're being hunted down some of a lot of it though i think is just like humans kind of find androids a little creepy like there, there's a big sure the, th- the big dividing line between humans and androids in this, especially the only androids we really see are the newest uh, Nexus 6 models. Not yes, to be okay. confused with the bad phone from Google from a few years ago. 
Oh my God, really? <laughs> the, yeah, they named their I, maybe an homage to this. I'm not. It's never. Quite I think they had clear. to do some legal stuff. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Because I mean, all these companies are always like inventing the torment nexus from the book. Don't invent the torment nexus to steal the joke from the tweet. And so you're never sure whether they're like quite aware of like the implications of names when they take them to use for their pro. Oh yeah. <laughs> or if they've just like misread something because they thought it sounded cool. But uh, anyway, the Nexus Sixes are very, very lifelike. Uh, the only way, like a hundred percent for sure, to tell them apart from humans is to do a bone marrow test, which is usually done after the android has been quote retired. Uh, but various law enforcement agencies on Earth also have like personality tests that they can administer to the androids. The one that Deckard tests is used to test like empathy. The Voight-Kampff um, test? Yes, the right? Voight-Kampff test. That is in the movie. Yes, and usually, uh, because as I mentioned, a bunch of animals have gone extinct or, or become extremely endangered. So animal ownership in this society is not really about like subsistence. It's not about like getting milk or eggs or whatever, even though you can do that. A lot of animal having in this society is like a status symbol. Like, oh, you're doing so well that you can own one of the one of the animals that still exists. Oh my God. And there's like a basically, you know, the Kelly blue book, the little book that I that am familiar has, with the book that tortures all of us because of our cars. Yes. Because of our cars. Yes. The book that tells everybody what your car is supposed to be worth. There's a, an analog in this book about that just tells every, it comes out every month and they tell everyone how much an animal is supposed to be worth. Oh, wow. Uh, and so some families don't want to bear the shame of not owning an animal, so they get robotic animals. Uh, Deckard and his wife, who they kind of hate each other, you don't you, you don't really spend much time with her, but it's just clear that they both live lives of quiet desperation. Sure, um, they have an electric sheep, and they live in fear of because you know you can make life like human androids, you can make life like animals, and they don't like do anything, but they do. You know, they do exist. They act like animals. They get sick and you got to take them to a secret vet who works on robot animals instead of real animals. Oh, well, well I was going to say this sounds like just a mobile game where I keep a sheep, but then you have to take it to the secret veterinarian, which is very different. And all the secret vets have like normal vet names, but you got it. You just got to know that, oh, this is the one that works on robot animals. So sure. that none of my neighbors find out that I have an electric sheep instead of like a real squirrel or something. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and like all kinds, like all animals and insects and bugs and whatever, like they all have values assigned to them. Like that is how widespread, like you don't just see stuff that's alive, just like out and about. Okay. Like one character finds a spider late in the book and it's like a big deal that he found a spider that's alive and just like walking around in the world. Even which bugs. You, yeah. Even bugs Like come to my basement and if I could sell spiders for money, I would have a lot of money. Because we got a sign out down front there. that just says "Spiders for Money." Spiders for money, please. All spiders the, the, for money and the chicks for free. Thousand dollars OBO. <laughs> Inquire with it within my web of spiders. Uh, so that's that's the basic setup. I think the thing, like the first point, I wanted to talk about regarding the movie, and then we can talk about plot stuff a little bit. Like sure. you can say, yeah, I guess you could say this happens in the movie, and I can be like, oh, it happens. Or does not happen that way in the book. And that'll be the conversation. Uh, the world in this book is is sort of in, like everything is just covered in this grayish, whitish radioactive dust. And yeah. you never see the sun. You never see the sky. You don't. It's a very drab, like gray, underpopulated world. Not a ton of like neon stuff. Not a lot of uh, cyberpunky things happening. It's just like a sad kind of desolate featureless kind of place. And so, I think the movie is the opposite of that. Like it, it does, it also has plot stuff, but one of the things that is it's remembered for and that it's famous for is like the, the look of it and how it helped to like pioneer this cyberpunk aesthetic that we're still dealing, that we're still dealing with every day. Yeah. Here in 2023. If you've, if you've ever been to, um, times square when it's rainy, or if you've ever seen a sci-fi movie where corporations are in charge mm -hmm. and there are billboards everywhere, uh, they saw Blade Runner. Like, that's just what <laughs> it looks like. 
Yes, Times um, Square when it's rainy is Blade Runner. And apparently, so Philip K. Dick passed away just a few months before the film was released. Um, there were multiple steps to it finally being developed. Um, would he was he involved at any point in like the screenwriting or approval process? Okay, just wondering. Um, he did. There was a guy before Hampton Fancher. Uh, who wrote the screenplay that then got rewritten a bit by a guy named David Peoples uh, for Ridley Scott. Um, there was another adaptation written by uh, the son of producer Herb Jaffe. I've, I just have to share this quote. Jaffe's screenplay was so terribly done, Robert flew down to Santa Ana to speak with me about the project, and the first thing I said to him when he got off the plane was, shall I beat you up here at the airport, or shall I beat you up back at my apartment? <laughs> uh but what Dix Dix uh, he re, he read the later adaptation and liked it, and he saw like a twenty minute like reel of what the special effects were going to look like and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He said, "I saw a segment of Douglas Trumbull's special effects for Blade Runner on the news. I recognized it immediately. It was my own interior world. They caught it perfectly." So he at least you know late in his life uh, thought it worked and thought it was representative of a version of this story i definitely what I, don't think it's in conflict with what no. appears in the story it just never says and then his hovership sat down next to a big radioactive like glowing pink sony sign I or think whatever it is. from from what i remember of the 2049 film there's a lot more emphasis on the ravages of like climate change and over like just draining everything from the earth type stuff yes. yeah and then in the original film, I don't remember much at all being talked about, like, why the world is the way that it is. The opening crawl is much more about it's really focused on these new androids and how they get used as, uh, you know, labor in the colonies uh, because the off-world colonies, multiple colonies, are very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And yes, people do want to escape Earth. There are a couple characters that talk about wanting to leave Earth but not being able to for whatever reason. It is the f- movie has way more of a vibe of like we are underfoot of these big corporations that control what is capable for us in our lives. And uh, these androids want to be free of that. Maybe we as individual humans want to be free of that. But this, you know, the whole radioactive. Like, there's just ash from the sky. No, that's not a thing. It's just a very dark, rainy movie with a lot of amazing lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this, like, nuclear fallout stuff is not... I think that might have happened. Maybe a character talked about it. Maybe about cut out of the version I saw. I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, it might just be, uh, like, I'm reflecting what society is worried about kind of thing. And in 1968, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is, you know, that we're going to get involved in a nuclear war where nobody can remember how it started or who won. We just ended up destroying the earth Yeah. and by the eighties and, and continuing into the, the sequel, we're worried about uh, what uh, corporate uh, power. We're worried about environmentalism. We're yep. worried about uh, finding resources for everybody. Resource scarcity. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Mm-hmm. So like, is the, is the book, a pl- like a, I almost called it a plot boiler. The word is pot is it, boiler. Is it a plot boiler? <laughs> is no. it a detective like noir? Does that vibe come off? Because that's not, the movie. Not really. Like it's there. Deckard is never out hunting for clues for where to find androids. Oh for, wow! Okay. For very long, like okay. he is. He is given and get this. Get what they're called poop sheets. He's given. <laughs> by his employer the poop sheet on each of these six androids before he goes out to get them including where they were last seen and most of them are like they're still either, there they're either found where they were last seen or they give themselves away in some stupid way to to Deckard like he's not he's he doesn't have to hunt for for stuff okay very long uh tell me if the what how this tracks with anything that happens in the movie before Deckard goes to hunt all the androids, which in the book he's motivated to do because every Android he retires is worth a thousand bucks and you can get a pretty good animal. If you had a few thousand bucks to place a stupid electric sheep that he hates sure. but before he goes out to do any of that, he is supposed to go to 
work with some people who make the androids and the like the Rosen Association, which is one of the only companies you hear about in the book at all. It's like you you hear about a couple of the companies that make androids. You get a sense that they are too big to really mess with because there are, you know, police departments all over the world that that say, hey, if you keep making these androids better, it's going to be impossible to tell them apart from humans. And that's going to make our jobs harder. Um but uh, and and the company just kind of keep doing it, so it doesn't seem like maybe they're too worried about the backlash from from law enforcement or any other like governing body on the planet. Nope. But he's supposed to go up there and test the 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 empathy test. What's it called? The Voigtkampf test. Voigtkampf test. Voigtkampf yeah. test. All right. Um. And he's he's supposed to use it on. It's going to be a blind test, basically. He's, he's supposed to be shown some people who are androids and some people who are people, and he's going to use them. And he has to, you know, he has to verify the accuracy of the test by getting everything right. And so the first person he tests is a member of this Rosen family, Rachel Rosen, uh, who is given the test and almost passes it i mean she is she is she thinks that she's a human that's the thing about some androids is some of them are given human memories and human brains and they can never prove that they weren't human because they have no memories of being androids um Mm -hmm. so he gives the test to her she almost passes it but then just that like the last possible second he figures out oh hey you're an android and she's like well it's news to me great yep (laughs) Um, and having, having confirmed that the test works, he goes about his business. So is there any, like, what's the relationship between Deckard and the androids in the, the film? In the film, and again, I've only seen this once. I'm not an expert here. That's more times than I've seen it. Fair enough. to me. So at the beginning of the film, a half dozen or so androids have hijacked a ship and landed in, I, I can't remember... Which one is L.A. and which one is San Francisco? San Francisco is the is the one it is in in the book. Okay, then it's L.A. in the film, and they're you know, in the in the film too. It's much more impressed upon you that these androids are like physically superior. Also, they're like some. Not only are they good for like menial labor, but many of them have combat abilities and like do backflips <laughs> and kicks and stuff. Um, but. So I think when he gets brought, he gets brought out of retirement, quote unquote to do it he's not motivated by an electric sheep at all that's not part of the movie at all and he ends up going to the what is called the tyrell corporation to talk to them about these newer models i think of the androids because it's still the nexus 6 stuff uh and it's not just like bring them in to like show them the test it is to i think to do some research and kind of detective legwork Uh, Mm -hmm. He does do it on a woman named Rachel, and it is revealed that she is an android, even though she doesn't think she is. And it's like this big moment for him, and I guess for the audience, where like it, it is supposed to be a kind of a new technology that they either have been and people didn't know about, but can now implant memories such that androids don't even know that they're androids. Mm-hmm. And so... That is leads to a big question about the film. So, so then in the rest of the movie, then he's hunting down the androids, and you know the, they're all pretty violent. So there's like a action sequence for each of them, kind of thing. Uh, but they're all the last one is like this philosopher poet monster who also is kind of impressive. Uh, <laughs> Rucker Howard does a great job. But the the thing underlying all of these interactions, especially in the cut that I saw, is that the final cut. That Harrison Ford's Rick Deckard has this moment where he's like, wow, you've been implanting memories in these androids. They don't even know that they may have been androids in the first place. And there's this underlining question in the film that means that means anyone could be an android. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole lot of discussion about the movie of whether or not Deckard is what in the film is called a replicant. Or an, and, or an Andy, I guess, mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has been answered multiple ways by different people at different points in their careers. And I think the sequel film takes the stance that he was not a replicant. 
but you know what? Authorial intent. Um, and I don't think that's a part of the book at all. He's a human. Yeah, he's like he is. He briefly wonders a couple of times whether he might be an android, but mostly like you're just told, yeah, he was given the test by his department years ago, and then he takes it again, and he's a human both times. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he's a human. The big the big journey that he's on is so there. Earth is. What do I want? I don't know if I want to say overrun. Like a a big. A theology that exists on Earth is this thing called Mercerism. Not in the movie at all. Where you take your hands and you put them on some handles and you stare into something called the empathy box. I, I do it every day. And you watch a man stumble up a hill and get like rocks thrown at him. And you know that when he gets to the top of the hill, he's going to die. And it's all there to like just make you really feel for the play of this guy. And and people get actual like wounds on them from the rocks they get thrown at them and like the empathy vision. Like you become Mercer and you're supposed to feel what he's feeling and it's supposed to help you. It's it's supposed to put you in a in a mind space of understanding what somebody else is going through. And like the the big thing, like the big the the reason why this movement exists you know whoever whoever started it that's not really gone into in the book at all but it's clearly supposed to like empathy is a big dividing line between humans and androids and it's a big it's a it's the reason why humans are living things who at least under some circumstances have like autonomy and rights and stuff and why androids are robots that we can retire when we find them and we don't have to feel bad about it is like, Oh, humans can feel empathy. And the, the worry, I guess, among a lot of, a lot of the people we encounter in the book is like, what if they do one that can't do empathy? Then what, then what happens? Was that, then what do we do? Humanity? Yeah. Yeah. Does, do the androids in the story also have the, um, the like artificially limited lifespan thing? Yeah. It's, it's not, in the book, it's not present, and you don't even hear about it until like quite a bit of the way through. Like, it's not a major part of the story, except to to Deckard, like when he starts like feeling things for Rachel, it, it makes him feel like, oh well, even if I did feel something for this android, it wouldn't be meant to last because they only last for four years. And it's okay. not a it's not a thing that the company did intentionally. It's because the companies that make these androids can't figure out how to make like self repair and self regulation oh, happen. Like that, that you just can't do the normal, like continuous regeneration of cells that, that the, humans do. And the so the movie is they, way yeah. meaner. Yeah. The, okay. The movie, tell me about it. The movie is like, yo, they're only allowed to live for four years because if they build up more than four years of memories and life experience, they will gain like, real personhood like Uh-oh. we need them to die after four years or else we won't be able to tell if they're androids anymore oh boy and so like one of them it's not they didn't even be like yeah if you let them live for more than four years their hard drive space they have run out hard drive space yeah and they, they crash <laughs> so the, the, it's kind of it reminds me of some of the like when you read the jurassic park novel and they talk about like the artificial ways that they keep the dinosaurs like reliant on them and then mm-hmm. the movie kind of flattens that a lot because it's it's mostly sci-fi mumbo jumbo um but yeah it's in the in the movie the all of the androids have this pressing concern of like one of them in particular is coming up on his death day and he's like i need to meet my creator and figure this stuff out or at least get revenge before i run out of time whereas this sounds like i don't know they just break after four years yeah, that's no, that's not part of it at all. And you're not really you're you're not really concerned too much with like the personhood of of most of the androids. Most of the thinking and and worrying that you do over like our androids living beings who I have empathy for, like that's all given to you through Deckard. Okay, okay. Uh, so his his first, you know, he he passes all this all this. He, he he does all this test stuff. Then he goes to find his first Android. Rachel calls him and is like, Hey, I guess I'm an Android and I'm feeling pretty crappy about it. Can I help you hunt the androids? Cause I might as well be good for something. And Deckard's like, mm, 
I got weird vibes from you and I don't really trust you to help me. So I'll talk to you. I'll, I'll think about it and call you back later. And he's not going to call her back later. Oh boy. <laughs> he, he fully doesn't intend to ever call her again when that happens. Uh, but he's supposedly being sent like somebody's coming over from Russia to help him retire these androids because like I had mentioned, like the Russian law enforcement people have an investment in, in retiring these, these robot people too. Uh, but he shows up and it turns out that he is a, the Russian guy is an Android. Oh, and he's the one who like Deckard before the events of the book happened, Deckard's like boss on the bounty hunter team gets shot by an Android and put in the hospital. And so that's why Deckard is, is up to do all this stuff by himself now is a version of that is what kind yeah. of sets the, the events in the movie in motion. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, uh, Deckard manages to, to retire him barely by the skin of his teeth. Uh, the second person he's got the poop sheet on is, uh, is an opera singer who goes and he starts giving her the Voight comp test. And she is like, are you, you, a lot of the questions in the Voight comp test, like some of them are about like mistreating animals because animals are so scarce that if you were really a human, you like, it should do something to you to hear about animals being needlessly love, killed or mistreated. I love hearing that because if that might, that is at best subtext in the movie. Like some of the rarity of animal stuff is in the film, but none of the electric sheep stuff is. So you don't really get that from Deckard's perspective. And you don't so, really get like the, the keeping up with the Joneses part of not at of all. Like the, the indignity of having an electric sheep instead of no. a regular one. Yeah. Um, and in the final cut, he doesn't have a partner or never had. a. I mean, I think in one of the voiceover versions, it references a divorce or something. So he doesn't even have a family. But the you get some of the Voight-Kampf questions, and yes, some of them are kind of this like torture animal empathy stuff, but it never really, at least as I remember, again, I, I only watched it the once, so if people talk about it, it kind of went by me as I was looking at all the cool visuals, but mm-hmm. it was not driven home in the same way that you're going to get from the book. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, so he is. So a lot of the questions are about animal stuff, and a lot of the other questions are about horny stuff. <laughs> like, mm. are you, like you're imagine you are you'd have a spouse and they're cheating on you or something. And the opera singer's like, "Wait, are you? You just came in here off the street with no no proof, no nothing. You're giving me this test. You're asking all these horny questions. Are you a pervert?" And so she calls the cops, and a cop who Deckard is never seen before comes and picks him up and he's telling him that you know you're the the building you say you work out of has been empty for years and and we're the real police and maybe you're the android whoa and brings Deckard in for questioning at this alternate police department and it becomes clear from looking at the poop sheet for the third person who Deckard is supposed to retire that this like fake chief of police who Deckard is talking to is an Android, but the bounty hunter who came to pick Deckard up is not an Android. Oh my God. Like there's some confusion about that initially, but he ends up not being an Android. That sounds rad as heck. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the, let me time code me a uh, Phil Resch. Actually, you don't have to time code me. We can just leave that in. So people know that we time code each other sometimes. Sometimes we do. Phil Resch is the name of the other, the other bounty hunter. And he is, he is kind of sadistic about his enjoyment of, of killing the Andes. Like they both go together to Some Westworld stuff. Yeah. Go back to the, the opera singer and Resh is the one who actually retires her. And, and Decker's kind of feeling a little bit bad about it because she was like, she's pretty and she had this like beautiful voice and she, you know, made this, this art and, you know, maybe, maybe we're, maybe we're the baddies to be. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to be killing these, these beings. And Resh is like, no, we're definitely not. And he and there's something about him that just makes Deckard gives Deckard the the creeps a little bit. Cool, love it, love a creep. Yeah, kind of a creep. And so there are three three more Andes left. Even the Deckard's already retired three of them. He's made three thousand bucks. That's enough that he goes and he buys. He puts a down payment down on a Nubian goat that he brings back to his wife and oh his wife God. who they're talking. I can't even. There's this other machine that we're not going to get to talk about as much because it doesn't factor in as much but the the scene at the beginning of the book where we see Deckard and his wife 
alone in the house. They talk about the, the Penfield mood, mood organ, which is this um, thing that you dial numbers into to make yourself feel a certain way. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there are dials for everything, including depression and also watching TV. And there's also a number you can dial that makes you want to dial a number. If you're just like not interested in having your mood altered that day. <laughs> It's like when you go to Google and you just hit "I'm feeling lucky." Have you? I've never done that because I'm I never feeling I've, lucky. I always have some. I'm always there for something. I I'm sure I've ever done it, but it's been a while. Yeah, I'm always there to Google like Pokemon with diamonds all around it because our friend's daughter is like either making up a Pokemon or trying to find out the name of a Pokemon. Yeah, and I have to try and find <laughs> to try and find it for them, or I'm looking up how to make the crust of homemade bread soft so it's good for sandwiches the specificity of the these like sci-fi items the empathy box the mood organ it does remind me of something like fahrenheit 451 that has the like the tv walls and the little headphones that people wear like i do just like that about this era of sci-fi where they just kind of come up with a gizmo that has like a lot of philosophical implications, sure. <laughs> but they kind of yada yada how it works. They're just mm-hmm. like, I don't know. There's technology's magic, whatever. It's the thing that you can dial an emotion. Let's let's yeah. imagine a world where that's possible. And it's yeah, I have up. to like. This is just me because I know by the time the '80s rolls around, this is definitely a thing. I think in the '60s you're starting to get some of it too, where you're getting this like. I don't know, this like intense fandom and brand loyalty that starts to spring up around like gadgets. Like if, if you think about the eighties, it's like the, the age of the, the Walkman. Like there are these, well, just the fifties and sixties are the like, Oh, you're going to get a washing machine. That's going to change your life. Yeah, like or a the washing microwave. machine or a fridge or a TV. Yeah. Like yeah. there are all these gadgets that are, that are changing society. And even if you go forward to now, it's like, you know, 20 years ago it was the iPod. Now it's the phone. Now it's an app. Now it's apps. Yeah, it is right. It's like if you're going to make a sci-fi world, then like, you know, what's the Walkman? What's the, what's the weird gadget that everybody has and only refers to like, what's, what's the Xerox where other people do make copiers, but it's only called Xeroxing because that's how prevalent the brand is. Like how essential this technology has become to some element of human life. So yeah, that's interesting. Again, this is not part of the, it's not part of the movie at all. I do think it is an interesting, like this mood dialer thing. If you if you think about Dick as someone who definitely ran in crowds where various experimental drugs were happening and they were just kind of you can alter your mind with specific substances and what are you seeking and, and things like that. Like definitely seems like a guy who would come up with a mood organ, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. but then think through what the ramifications of it being like a sanitized, corporatized, commoditized thing. Yeah. As well. But their their marriage sounds uh Sad. it's not great like she is she is feeling depressed and it makes her dial in the the code for depression so she can just like kind of sit around and have on we all day which <laughs> you know ever done that i guess if you never did it you'd be interested in what it felt like i guess i've ever used spotify for that you know to have the option to to do that instead of just like having, having my brain it, be like yeah. that's what i'm do- that's that's what we're doing today i hope you don't have anything planned <laughs> Like, come on. So he's got three more Andy's? Yeah, yeah, so he's, yeah, he's he's bought this, he's put the down payment on this goat, and his wife is really happy about the goat, and he's happy about the goat, but I don't know, he's, he's still feeling empty in some way, it's kind of weird in some way, so he, call, he ends up calling Rachel to be like, hey, can you help me find these other androids? Can we meet in this hotel downtown? Mm. And they meet, and they hook up. Whoa. And they both tell each other that they love each other for some reason. It happens really fast. <laughs> okay. And then this is this is when the like oh we only live for four years thing comes up. Sure. sure. Uh, but the the big upshot of this is Rachel reveals to Deckard, hey, actually, I am an android who I knew I was an android the whole time, and my job is to go around and to have sex with all the bounty hunters to get them to to consider that maybe androids are real to, to, to get them to feel something for androids. So they feel more conflicted about killing them. I also did this with Phil Resch. She, she says, but he had like the opposite reaction to it is it made him want to kill androids more than he did before. Whoa. 
So, you know, whatever. And so Deckard goes to, you know, he he is feeling pretty bad. He goes to this apartment building where she's told Deckard that the other three androids are. This is, I don't know if this person's in the movie at all. There is a a secondary protagonist. Let's talk about who I think we're going to talk about. John R. Isidore. Yes. Okay. Tell me all about him in the book. He's called a chicken head. What? That's the that's the slur that you use for these oh, people. No. They're like they, their IQ has fallen below a certain level and they can't reproduce reliably and they're not allowed to go to Mars. So they just kind of hang around either just like straight up dying or doing menial work on Earth. And like that's his that's his lot in life. Um, So he is he is living in this empty sort of apartment building out in the suburbs and a an android who we think for a minute is Rachel, but it becomes clear later that she's just the same like model of Android as Rachel, like Rachel and a couple of other androids who all came, not, not Rachel, uh, the, the name of the Pris, is it Pris? Pris. Yes. Pris, yep, yep, yep. uh, Pris, the Rachel looking non Rachel Android and the other two androids who are part of this group of six are all hanging out in this apartment building with John Isidore. And we just like, he is, he is mostly eager to please. He is attracted to Pris, uh, but his perspective is mostly there so we can watch androids doing Android stuff. I mean, I'd, like it's not all about that, but it is partly that. And it's I also was... asking you to consider, you know, the kinds of, of beings that the society considers subhuman. And like, I was going to, yeah. Ooh, that's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about the, POV of the book and if there were any perspective shifts so you've already answered that because yeah, it's, it's just Deckard and Isidore pretty much because in the film um, there's a the we do spend some time with the androids away from Deckard and it's not exclusively this but at a certain point in the film it's mostly because they have latched themselves onto a guy named J.F. Sebastian, mm-hmm. who is the remix of this character, who is not a chicken head. He is not... Uh, I like that you said that is kind of a rumination on like who is allowed to be human in this culture. That's not what it is in the movie. He is a android designer. So his his apartment, this big spacious apartment in creepy future LA is filled <laughs> with like kind of bizarre not like lower tech low tech androids like, like android experiments and prototypes yeah, and it's stuff. really okay, creepy cool. mm-hmm. um andrew he is played by the guy who plays uh eb farnham from deadwood <laughs> and he's it's an amazing performance Ooh, that's that sounds great actually and his his deal is he is a brilliant Android designer who is working with the Tyrell Corporation. He seems to have been involved in some of the like memory uh implant like implanting stuff, maybe. Uh so they have to go to him to kind of get to Tyrell, like the the like the big bad of the corporation, right? Mm-hmm. His deal is not that he's a a chicken head, as I said, he cannot emigrate to the new colonies because he has a, an immune disorder or a hormone disorder, rather, that causes him to age super fast. Oh, okay. So you're looking at this like, you know, you're looking at E.B. Farnham from, you know, 15 years hence or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he's still kind of like crusty. He's not a young, young man. But he's like, I'm like 25. And you're like, you are not 25. <laughs> and he's like, no, I have a hormone disorder. I have, ja- which I have is, jack disease. I have jack disease, which means I can't go to the colonies or something. So he's this like sad sack guy that they that the androids take advantage of. But it is he is an interesting way by which the film allows you to spend more time with these like menacing, but if you think about it enough, sad characters yeah 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 and that's that's kind of how the remaining androids are presented though you don't you don't get an amazing sense of them as as people until isidore goes out and he sees a spider in the hallway and he captures it in a water bottle with the hole poked in the top and he brings it into the apartment like look at the spider it's so cool it's so like it's so weird to find life just like out 
living in this radioactive society. And the first thing any of the androids do is like, why does it got so many legs? I bet I could, I bet I could get by with fewer legs than that. Let's pull some legs off of it and see. And I think that's, that kind of breaks Isidore of, of viewing them as like peers or as human. And I think the, the, it's part of what the book wants to do with them too, is just, they are, they are devoid of empathy because the first thing that they wanted to do the spider when they saw it was pull all the legs off it because they were sure it didn't need that many. Oh my God. Yeah. And poor Isidore, like again, making you think, you know, what, where the line is between humans and not humans, like feels awful for the spider. By the time they pull enough of the legs off of it and go to pull another one off, he just like grabs it and throws it in the sink and drowns it because it's like a kinder thing to do than to yeah. keep tormenting it that way. Deckard shows up. He, he, he briefly has a hard time killing the one that looks like Rachel, but Briefly. he does. And then he has a pretty easy time killing the other two. Um, and then he's killed, he's killed six Andes and the bosses are really happy with him, but he's feeling really crappy and bad. And so he flies like up to Oregon, which is kind of an irradiated nothing zone where nothing is anymore. Um, the, the hover cars fly in the novel, fast, I guess. In the novel. Yeah. In the, oh. in the novel. Yes. Okay. Not, not in real life. Okay. Oregon's fine. Uh, <laughs> And he is like, he's just like thinking about, there's this whole, it's, it's more than we have time to get into. There's this whole scene with the androids where it turns out that the, like the big prevailing TV personality of the day is also an Android. And so he does this big expose that's supposed to discredit mercerism as an ideology. I wanted to get back to this. This will be a good close. Yeah. Yeah. But, but. Then Deckard like sees Mercer in like a vision and he kind of convinces him that what he's doing is right. And then while he's in Oregon thinking about how bad he feels, he starts walking up this hill and some like a rock falls on him and he kind of is becoming Mercer in a weird way. Whoa. And then he sees a toad and he's like, whoa, a toad. Nobody ever sees toads. And he takes it home to his wife and oh, and Rachel killed their goat after these, after she slept with Deckard, Rachel came back and killed the goat. Um, uh, so, uh, he brings this toad back and his wife picks it up and like finds a little like compartment on the bottom of it. It's like, this is a robot toad. And Deckard's like, well, I said, okay, great. It's been like 24 hours since I slept. So I'm going to go to sleep. And he goes to sleep and his wife calls the robot pet store and like asks for robot flies that they could feed the robot toad because they're going to take care of it anyway. And that's the, that's the end of the oh, story. Oh, wow. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And just his, his wife being like, man, I know he, like I know it's a robot toad, but I think he, I th- really think he needs this one. I think we both need this one. We're going to take care of it like it's a real animal. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The movie ends. Yeah. What'd you? Yeah. What'd you want to talk about? And let's. Yeah. We'll be done. So the the movie ends with this kind of open question. So like it it ends with Deckard having done his job. The 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 replicants he was supposed to kill so the, the name blade runner comes from some other story that william burroughs wrote a film treatment for that he then turned into a novella and someone was like that's a cool name for a cyberpunky type thing i'm going to use mm-hmm. that for a movie instead mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but anyway so he's like oh, i'm a blade runner i killed all my replicants i am in love with this replicant rachel now though i think we're going to run away and be together and open question of whether or not someone's going to hunt them down. Right. Mm-hmm. And the final cut ends with a lot of ambiguity on that fact. It also ends with a little bit of ambiguity on whether or not Deckard is a replicant. So you kind of asked me like, what is the rap on mercerism? Like, cause that to me, I was like, I don't even, I've never even heard of that. It's not mm-hmm. a part of the film at all. Mm hmm. Uh, and I think it's actually an, an interesting little illustration of how the legacy of the film has like far outreached the legacy of the novel in like just popular discourse. So like I I Google searched like is Deckard a replicant? And like basically every pop culture website that you can think of ran some version of that article when 2449 came out oh, I bet. Yeah. or has some other version of that article 
about the legacy of Blade Runner, the original yeah, film. Yeah, so some combination of like regular nerd nostalgia and like an SEO play around when the reboot movie came out. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah. just and in general, that kind of nerd culture has become ascendant, right? We've talked about that on other books, and it's just way more part of just what we talk about when we talk about film and what we talk about when we talk about sci-fi. Deckard, whether or not he's a replicant is like this big open question. I Googled like, just what is Mercerism? And mm-hmm. I get like Wikipedia, I get Schmoop, and I get Spark Notes, Shmoop. and then I get like people's academic essays that they wrote for college when they were assigned Do Androids Dream of Electric, electric Sleep in a class. <laughs> and then I find like philipdickreview.wordpress.com and the clarareview.medium.com. Like you have the what seems like a big part of this novel, which obviously we didn't talk about too much because mm-hmm. the the things that I could find really get across what you already talked about, which is that it's this religion that is about empathy, that is about human connection, that is the dividing line between humans and androids in this novel. So we have this religion that gets that across. The I just think that that is like a good microcosm by which if anybody's like, why is why does everybody call it Blade Runner and nobody talks about this novel? And it's not like people shouldn't talk about the novel, but films are just bigger than books, first of all, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially this yeah. film and this book. But, yeah, yeah. And, and this is part of that. Um, the it's other just thing, easy. It's just literally easier to watch a movie than it is to read a book. It's shorter to, usually, not to, like, you know. Not to, not to knock anybody's hobby, but it is just easier to to, to watch a thing than to I, read a thing. I did just interesting stuff I found about mercerism, and this will kind of close us out because, like, again, it's not part of the novel. Like, I was uh, not part of the movie. I was really interested to find this stuff. Mm-hmm. It appeared in a short story by Philip K. Dick called "The Little Black Box" in 1964. Okay. Four, four years prior to this novel, it has the empathy box in it. It's this whole story about this underground religion um, that is decentralized, and it's a threat to the prevailing regime. It's this kind of alternative message. It's really unclear what the message is. It's just people connecting in a way that the people in power don't want them to. So I, I was kind of fascinated that it was it, it predated this novel. Mm-hmm. Um the the whole like being exposed as a fraud thing is interesting because it's like uh, it doesn't seem to stop people from doing mercerism it just it's like a whole like what is real does it matter if we do it anyway does it matter the fact that the guy who who claimed to be wilbur mercer is a fraud yeah like the the book is it does not go for long enough for that to become a, a question, but I think you do see through Deckard's actions and what he chooses to do is like the movement is bigger than like yep. somebody revealing facts about it. Like, yep. th- like that is, is going to fracture it. It's going to damage it, but that's like, that's not how religion and belief and, and this sort of thing goes is like, people do not, say oh you've presented me with new facts now my belief system is going to change it's going to be well how does my belief system ingest and like twist the the facts that you've given me or like reject the facts that you've given me so that i can continue believing the thing even harder than i believed it before yeah and and dick also seemed interested in okay the the way that like a religion could be disproved but also what is the function of that religion in this like dystopic society? Like if it is a, a force for potential good, is there a, a like, does it matter if it's fake, if we're, st- if it's still creating like positive change or whether or not, I don't know that Mercerism is creating positive change in this novel or not, but mm-hmm. it just seems like something he's kind of interested in when he, when he thinks about like the powers that be yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you for reading the book, Andrew. I'm, I appreciate it as an opportunity to watch the film and also like there's a whole bunch of stuff in this novel I had no idea yep. existed. Sure is. I don't want to care for an electric sheep, do you? I like it's kinda cool to <laughs> it's kinda cool kinda cool that you could have a robot that was that realistic. Okay. I don't know. Like maybe it would feel empty to take care of it. But maybe it would be kind of cool that you could be like, hey, I'm going to switch my cat off because I can't deal with it this week. And then I'll switch him back on next week. <laughs> I know? did ever have a Tamagotchi. 
which seems like kind of the, the closest equivalent we'll ever have. Yeah, I mean, sure. I never had a Furby. No, I mean. Those are terrifying. Yeah, why would you want to do that to yourself? No. I, I think we had one of whatever the off-brand Tamagotchi was mm-hmm. called. I mean, there were a bunch of them. Yeah, anyway. That's it. That's the episode. That's the episode. Thanks if for you, listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you for listening. If you are listening and you're like, wow, I don't know if I am an Android or not, send us an email with your answers to the Voight Comp Test overduepod at gmail.com. I mean, or just your thoughts on the novel. That's fine, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's also fine. Uh, find us on so- social media at overduepod. Uh, thanks to Mike, Robert, Tanya, Marcy, Marty, Starfish Chick, Andy, Lizzie, and more for reaching out over the past week. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have the month's schedule and a little player that you can use to play whatever episode it is that you want to you listen to. If you don't want to download it uh, via Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your podcatcher of choice is, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overduepod. Support the show financially. Put our kids through preschool and daycare. Help them keep getting us sick. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thanks to the... Just keep building those little immune systems, everybody. Thanks for sending our kids to group daycare. <laughs> uh, we also get uh, bonus episodes early. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up our Sandman series here pretty soon after deadlines and sickness stopped derailing our attempts to record. Yep. Uh, and yeah, to get access to our Discord and, and a few other little, little treats, little treats for everybody. Craig, what are you reading next week? Oh, we're both talking about Cackle by oh, Rachel yeah. Harrison. Oh, Rachel yeah. Harrison, right? Yeah, we recorded that one already. Um, that is with Natasha from Unspoiled. That kicks off Spooktober. Next week Ooh. is Spooktober. Um, we can tell you that... The March of Time is the I spookiest know, right? thing of all. Um, we can tell you that after Cackle, we're talking about The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. And then we're talking about the daughter of dr moreau is that what it's called yes by sylvia moreno garcia uh and then a novel called moon of the crusted snow and then we have our patron's choice for spooktober which is still up in the air but it will probably either be uh well it will definitely be one of these three books i am legend the exorcist or red dragon i will not tell you what's in the lead because as of the time of this recording you can go Join our Patreon and vote if you Yeah, want. make your voice heard. Um, and then I think we're going to have a bonus episode uh, about a book called A Night in the Lonesome October. I think a dog is involved. Yeah. Wait, what's up, dog? Oh, you said a dog. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's your, I blame your voice. I always blame my voice. Thanks everyone for listening. I'm so sorry about my voice. Yeah, I'm no, you truly did. You did good. And not a replicant. You did good. You did pretty good. And now I'm you glad. can go and drink some sleepy time tea and go to sleep. I'm gonna and drink a fourth cup of it. Yes, we'll all feel better for it. I think. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to us. And until we come to you next week with our regular voices, I hope. Please try to be happy. Yeah. What? Hold on. Let me. Is that thing? Uh. No, it's a. It's okay. I thought it was a. Okay, (laughs) we can cut this out. (laughs) I thought it was a subway promotion, but I was just thinking about that fake subway promotion about September (laughs) 11th.